Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Progressive Bitcoiner. I'm your host, Trey Walsh, and today we have on the show Bradley Rettler. Now, Bradley did an episode with Mark about a year and a half ago covering the basics of Bitcoin and all of the, it's called the FAQ episode in terms of Bitcoin, which I would still encourage folks to listen to that episode if you want to get more into what is what is Bitcoin and a lot of common questions asked. This episode, we focused a little bit more on progressive politics, on his upcoming book that he has coming out with Andrew and Craig from Resistance Money, called Resistance Money, actually, which will be hopefully published uh, in early 2024, which we'll keep you all posted on. But anyway, Bradley is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Wyoming and likes to talk all things progressive politics, Bitcoin, philosophy, and everything in between. So we get into a lot of that in this conversation and really hope you all will enjoy this episode. And as always, you can give me any feedback on the episode. You can reach me at hello at progressivebitcoiner.com. All right, I'll let you get to the episode and we'll see you again next week. Hey, Bradley, welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner. Welcome back to the Progressive Bitcoiner, I should say. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Yeah, excited to have you on. And and for those, I'll mention this again, for those that have not listened, uh, Bradley recorded an episode with previous host Mark Stefani about a year and a half ago, um, covering the basics of Bitcoin, just a deep dive into what is Bitcoin. I would highly encourage you to look into that episode as well. This one, we're going to take a bit of a different approach with the conversation, but folks can check that out um, for, for all of that content, which is an awesome episode. But before we jump in, um, Brad, do you want to tell people a little bit about who you are that may not know um, what you do and, and what you've been doing in the space? Yeah, I'd be happy to. My name is Bradley Rettler. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Wyoming. And having first been exposed to and started thinking about Bitcoin in late 2013, early 2014, I started thinking of it as a research interest for my job in 2017, 2018. Um, And along with Craig Wormke and Andrew Bailey, started a Bitcoin research collective approaching questions about Bitcoin from a a philosophical uh, standpoint. And we've written some papers on cryptocurrency and now are writing a book on bitcoin awesome and super excited for the book the the book is resistant money that's right that's going to be the title of the book resistance money although we did go back yes. and forth resistant money or resistance money uh, resistance yes yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 uh it, it is both um super excited for we've had a lot of really great bitcoin books coming out and i'm super excited for this one to come out, but why don't we why don't we start there with with this book? How did that come about? Because I know you all have been working on articles and had been appearing on podcasts talking about a lot of these things. So can you tell people a little bit about how did that start in terms of like, wow, we want to write a book on this, actually kind of collect all of these thoughts, all these articles. And how did you narrow down what to talk about in the books? Because people can reference the website. I believe all your chapter markers are probably still the same as what will be in the final publish. Is that right? Uh, not quite. But yeah, resistance.money slash book gives you chapter summaries of maybe a paragraph each. And some of those will be moved around where we combine some chapters and um, the the security and energy chapter will be two chapters instead. So, But it, it'll all be okay. pretty close. Um, yeah, the so the slightly long story is that Andrew and I had been talking about Bitcoin for a while, and then I went to a conference that Craig was giving a paper at, and his paper was on Bitcoin. And Craig and I had known each other um, 
from several years back, but had never talked about Bitcoin at all. And so after his talk, or maybe before his talk, uh, we met up and I said, I can't believe you're thinking about Bitcoin. And Craig is like, are you into Bitcoin? And so we talked about Bitcoin. And then at the the party at the end of the conference, Craig and I were like off in our own little corner. <laughs> Some people would mm-hmm. come and go, but he and I basically just stayed in one spot uh, for three or four hours talking about Bitcoin and started up a, a Gmail chat with Andrew, um, just thinking about philosophical implications and, and philosophical takes on Bitcoin. And we decided we wanted to try to write something about it. And there's, you know, a lot of stuff about Bitcoin is best handled by computer scientists or lawyers or macroeconomists or whatever. And so the topics of the book are kind of constrained by what we're good at, which is we're good at doing philosophy. And so we Mm -hmm. can think about moral concerns regarding privacy and censorship and inclusion and things like that, because we took a lot of ethics classes and that's, that's kind of how we think. So obviously there are philosophical ramifications for some of the other things like the computer science, like the monetary policy. And so we do talk about those, but we try to keep our own arguments and conclusions squarely in uh, the space that's licensed to us by our training Mm -hmm. in philosophy. We don't talk too much about like macroeconomic predictions or things like that, because Mm -hmm. it's just not what we know. Wow, Bitcoiners staying in their lane. That's an interesting <laughs> concept as well. Um, no, that, that's great. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited for this, this book to come out. Um, for folks that say, how does Bitcoin connect with philosophy, with morality? Um, what would be your, your pitch to those folks? Because I think a lot of people that are in it can see that connection. But what our hope is, is that more and more the audience that listens to this and finds value in these um, episodes and content might be progressives, left, mainstream, or people that don't even know that much about Bitcoin or understanding, you know, why are we approaching it uh, in this lens of, you know, equity, equality, philosophy, morality, all of these things. So what would you say to, to those folks about that? Yeah, the first thing that Andrew and Craig and I ever wrote together, the first thing that we published, at least, maybe we had started writing some stuff. But the first thing that we published was a Coindesk article called Why Bitcoin Needs Philosophy. So mm-hmm. I would say, look at that. But the basic yep. idea is that um, Bitcoin is relevant to a very large group of disciplines. Um, the ones we've already mentioned, computer science, law, economics, um, also psychology, sociology, um, things like that. So you can approach them from one of these angles and, you know, talk a lot about the computer science of Bitcoin, but that won't necessarily draw out the economic implications of that computer science or the moral implications mm-hmm. of that computer science. And philosophy is kind of uniquely situated to take on all of these. Um, in philosophy, we can take anything uh, from any discipline as premises in an argument. And sometimes they're empirical. Sometimes they're a priori. They're just, you know, theoretical from first principles. And we can mix the two kinds of things. You can have uh, an economic premise plus a moral premise that yields uh, either an economic or a moral premise. So philosophy has this unique standing, I think, in the academy in that it 
takes as inputs everything. <laughs> um, mm. And so, you know, we're, we're far from the best computer scientists or economists or lawyers. Um, we're far from the best philosophers. But um, we do have this ability to navigate all these kinds of spaces. And then hopefully, you know, stay in our lane with respect to speculation about other disciplines um, and try to let the arguments sort of take us where they where they will. Mm. And in terms of academia, I know the short answer on this, but um, how do you feel Bitcoin reception has been, let's say in, in philosophy in general? So you said, OK, we're not even the best philosophers or <laughs> this and that, but you are a, a, a few. And I think mm -hmm. you're incredible philosophers. You are a, a small few that navigate this world and all of these intersections. And not many are. I think that number will grow quite a bit um, as we continue to go on, as people know uh, or may not know, Bitcoin's only 14 years old. Um, so I, I like to think it's probably going to be here for a while in terms of people talking about it, researching it. But in terms of academia, since you know you said 2017-ish, things like that, um, up to today, how have you seen Bitcoin grow or evolve in terms of you know real academic research and study, or has it just not? Um, I think... In economics, it's been going on for a while and continues to grow. Will Luther was publishing on Bitcoin in 2011, um, mm -hmm. so way, way before I was even thinking about it as a potential uh, subject of study. Um, computer science, similar. There's, there's been stuff for a long time. It, within philosophy, it's been starting to grow. Um, I believe that Craig's paper was uh, What is Bitcoin, published in Inquiry, was one of the first. Um, and then there's uh, Asya Pasinski has a paper on it. Martin Glazer has a paper on it. Um, Andrew and Craig and I have a, a series of papers on cryptocurrency more generally. We pitched Bitcoin. They countered with blockchain. We met in the middle with, with cryptocurrency. With crypto. <laughs> um, so I think interest is growing in, in terms of the actual published work. In terms of like what the academy thinks of it, people who aren't working on it, um, it's very mixed. Some people think it's really cool to use our training to investigate this new phenomenon. And there's been sort of a move in philosophy towards kind of applied social issues in the last five or six years um, mm. that were well situated um, in. So rather than just doing these pure uh, investigations into being and time and space and things like that, people are turning their attention towards phenomena that we experience in the world and thinking, you know, what, what can, what we've learned about metaphysics or ethics teach us about these things, gender, race, sexual orientation, love, humility, forgiveness, basically anything. Um, and so money is one of those things. And Bitcoin is uh, an example of a money. So I think most people are intrigued and they think it's cool and they mm. want to, you know, know what we come up with. Some people have a mistaken understanding of the origins of Bitcoin and the implications of Bitcoin. They think it's this mm -hmm. right-wing or libertarian um, kind of thing. They've maybe read some people that have erroneously claimed that and just never really done that much research themselves about it. And so they're, they're kind of dismissive of the project and, and hostile towards the idea of doing it, of lending Bitcoin any legitimacy. And, you know, mm -hmm. they don't, of course, listen uh, 
to these kinds of conversations that we're about to have about progressivism and Bitcoin and how Bitcoin fulfills progressive ideals uh, because they don't care enough to do it. And they've kind of decided mm-hmm. um, what yeah. they're going to believe about it. Yeah. And, you know, so much of that, it's a whole other conversation, but just a, a point of privilege, their own, you know, status in the world, their own positioning and their, you know, job, their, you know, academic setting, their business setting, whatever. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, they're they're not interested in stories about how people in developing countries are using Bitcoin, how protest movements are using Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily because were they presented with it, they they wouldn't believe it. But they're they're so confident already in their own stance that they they just think it would be a waste of time to actually listen mm-hmm. to any good things about Bitcoin. And I can understand that. I, like I have that view about various things, right? There's all these mummy mummies coming up <laughs> everywhere that that might be alien mummies, and mm-hmm. I've got friends that are like, "You've got to do a deep dive into this stuff." And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm confident enough that they're fake that I'm not going to do a deep dive into that right now. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, if a lot more evidence comes up, maybe I'll look at it later. So maybe that's the position that they're in with Bitcoin. I can't necessarily fault for that. Yeah. And that's a generous take in that, you know, for I think many folks, like when I first heard about Bitcoin, I was like, oh, that like crypto bros that like, you know, what wh- what is this thing? And then you have to do some counterintuitive mental gymnastics to get to a point where I'm like, I think this could be one of the most important things for our world in terms of all of these things we'd like to see be different. Um, th- that's quite a, quite a stretch of road to, to get between. And I think, you know, I encourage people and Bitcoin educators and things like that to keep practicing patience and actually talking to people about what this is rather than just saying also outlandish claims like, right. Bitcoin fixes everything. If you don't understand it, I, I don't have time, right. Those kind of mantras aren't going to really get us anywhere with that. But as you alluded to, you talk a lot about, um, progressive politics being a progressive progressivism and Bitcoin. And in terms of Bitcoin media landscape, a lot of the people that are some of the loudest proponents of Bitcoin, I would argue are more on the right and US libertarian leaning stage in terms of our US context. And obviously, there's so many global stories of Bitcoin that we like to highlight as well. But for for this conversation, and for those listening, I'm going to focus a lot on the US context um, in terms of progressive. So in terms of you being a progressive, if you don't mind me asking, where did that that start for you kind of your your political journey is it a lot of people are like okay i kind of found more of my political values and leanings in college or through this or that or i was really excited about this this movement that i was a part of where where did that that start for you uh it started with bernie sanders (laughs) in Mm -hmm. uh the lead up to the 2016 primaries and election and i think prior to that i probably would have described myself as sort of a leaning libertarian um and then when I heard Bernie start talking about, you know, taking care of other people and lifting up the people at the bottom, and if, ne- you know, if that involves necessarily bringing down the people at the top a little bit, that should be a sacrifice that we're willing to make. And I sort of looked back on the things that I had believed previously and thought that I was really selfish and uh, not a very good person and that my motivations uh, were suspect. <laughs> and I, I mm. liked his vision for kind of community and what we owe to each other uh, as a country, as a group of people, and the kinds of sacrifices that we should be willing to make for each other. So um, I think that that sort of jilted me out of whatever 
mildly libertarian, but mostly not caring that much about politics at all um, state of mind that I was in. Mm. And I, I don't think it's um, just random or coincidence that a lot of Bitcoiners that would say they're progressive or on the left before Bitcoin were Bernie bros, mm -hmm. were in the Bernie camp, were um, from that political leaning. And I, for me, coming from that camp as well, there was such a natural connection. It didn't take me to, you know, a couple of months, but early on, I started to realize the, the potential of looking to upend a system that benefited the 1%, looking to upend a system that did not support workers' rights um, and that kept this inequality raging um, and inflation raging and all these things. There was a natural connect for me. So I don't think it's any coincidence. There, there are a lot of folks that are from the Bernie camp or more progressive camp in the US that once they get into Bitcoin and figure it out, there's a natural connection there. I think that makes a, a ton of sense. But for people that aren't from that political camp, I think they're very confused um, mm -hmm. uh, about that because for many folks, progressive or that word means uh, much of what they've seen uh, in terms of like large government deficits. Um, problems and political problems just continue to go on and the the Democrats don't do anything about it, right? That's That's what a lot of people associate with that word. So something that I battle with very openly and honestly, whether it's stuff I post or just in private chats is even the name of this podcast in general. Um, and the weight of that word, which I really enjoy, but I'm <laughs> able to get through some of this stuff that people are distracted by. And I, I suppose you could say that about any name of anything. Um, being a philosopher, I'm sure you could, we could talk for 12 hours about that. But for you, that that word, that association, um, do you see where people are coming from with that? Do you think a lot of that is just people not liking your values and politics in general or, or mine or whoever from the left? How do, you, how do you sort through all that in terms of folks that are from the left navigating in the Bitcoin community, navigating with the word progressive, things like that? Yeah, I think you can think of, of progressivism in a bunch of different ways. So there's this historical take on it that traces um, back to the 1920s and government regulations about businesses and breaking up of monopolies and things like that, and goes back even further to like the creation of a free market or the attempt to get rid of limitations of people um, that are trying to participate in the market. So you could see progressives as like fighting against uh, serfdom and things like that. Um, you could think of it as a set of values that is maybe some sort of cluster. And if you accept enough of them, then you're a progressive. Or you could think of it as a set of policies that you want the government to enact. And I, the way that I think about it is the, the middle one, the, the set of values. So I think of the people who consider themselves progressive. And this just might be a semantic issue about how people today use the term progressive. Um, but when I think of a progressive, I think of someone who thinks that healthcare is a right that people should have, that people shouldn't be dying because they can't afford um, insulin or they can't afford a surgery that they would need. Um, I think of uh, being anti-war, thinking that the U.S. should not have, you know, gone into wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and things like that. Um, believing in equal rights, being against monopolies thinking that climate change is real and is partly caused by humans and that we could do something to slow it down or mm -hmm. stop it. Um, getting more people the right to vote and the ability to vote 
reforming immigration, letting more people in, things like that. So I think, you know, if you agree with most of these, or all of these, then I would consider you a progressive. Um, then there's a bunch of policies that various official organizations that have the term progressive in their name um, advocate for in order to bring about these values. And I think you could disagree with all of those and still be considered a progressive. Uh, maybe you have more nuanced takes and you don't think, for example, that the Green New Deal or Medicare for All is the right way of bringing about um, you know, climate change mitigation and uh, economic inequality and healthcare pro pe people dying because they they can't afford uh, healthcare. So I think yeah, you probably still count as a progressive, but maybe some of those organizations wouldn't consider you a progressive. And so I, I don't know how much to f to fight for or about the term, but when I use it, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah. And I, and I just happen to agree with you. I, I think I've mentioned that multiple times where for me, progressive is about a value set. A lot of my friends who would call themselves progressives is about a value set. Um, and it's not about a political party. And I would argue that's our approach here through the progressive Bitcoiner as well. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm one person, I'm going to have guests on that are progressive and not. And it's kind of about these conversations that center around different value sets and different things to talk about. Um, you know, this isn't the progressive perspective on Bitcoin or the world. And this is the one take, just like Jason Meyer says in his book, it's like, it's a progressives. Like I'm a progressive, progressive Bitcoiner podcast. So I, I, I think folks listening and in, in the Bitcoin space, I think a lot of prominent Bitcoiners in the space that also align with left or progressive when they say that most people I've had conversations with typically are, are in that camp of it's a value set. We're not advocating for one specific policy or we probably we might disagree on policies or things like that. Just at a personal level, we're not advocating for like one political party or a political leader. It's, it's this value set. And I think when uh, in terms of just the Bitcoin community, when Bitcoiners can come into the space understanding that, I think we're able to have better conversations rather than hearing, oh, you're progressive. That means you want the Green New Deal and that's it. Well, no, that doesn't necessarily, maybe, maybe not, but um, that's, that's not the starting point. So I think that's a very good distinction that hopefully many people will hear loud and clear. So I don't have to keep repeating that um, to, to folks in the community. But Yeah, I think ju just like any other uh, fandom or group of people, you know, if, if you get a bunch of people who are enthusiastic about guitars or about a certain video game or something, there's going to be a wide range of views represented. There are certainly Bitcoiners who don't count as progressive. There are Bitcoiners, for example, who think that women shouldn't have jobs and should stay at home all the time. Um, I don't think they, they share the same value system. I don't I think if we abstract up enough, we can say, oh, yeah, we agree about this. So I would count you as a progressive, too. There are certainly yeah, people yeah. Um, who are disconnected. But someone who thinks that, um, say, uh, it's important to have racial equality or gender equality. Um, but they disagree about the very specific measures. Uh, they disagree about particular bills, something like that. Um, I'm not sure that disqualifies you from being a progressive. So mm -hmm. I think of it as a pretty 
wide camp. Hi, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitbox. Now, Bitbox is a hardware wallet that's open source, incredibly secure and easy to use. And it's what I'm using to safely secure my Bitcoin in cold storage. Now, I know self-custodying Bitcoin can really be intimidating, but Bitbox is designed for ease of use without compromising on security. It's USB-C compatible and allows you to easily back up and restore your private keys with a micro SD card, which is really cool. Now you can purchase the BitBox using the promo code TPB at the link found in the show notes for 5% off your purchase. And I really want to thank BitBox for their support of the podcast. And I'm really excited about this new partnership. All right, I'll let you get back to the episode now. Yeah, and, and I think one thing for folks to know as well, and you know, for us to, to jump into you know, the whole reason of having a lot of these conversations too is also because there have been so many folks in the progressive and left camp that have been for not trying to make it sound like a conspiracy the way they want, but have been lied to about Bitcoin or lied to about certain things um, in terms of the way our world works or Fed policy or different things that they just don't think about, right? So a lot of these conversations are intended for those folks as well to say, you know, uh, we're not trying to say Bitcoin is is progressive in this way. Bitcoin's a progressive tool. Um, there are ways you can assign progressive values and say, this is how it helps fulfill that or this works in conjunction with that. But it's also because there's so much FUD from the left still about Bitcoin that we're trying to say, no, it is not owned by this political camp or this political party. It, it is a, a free and open tool um, for accomplishing a lot of different things, which could include some of these progressive values that we talk about. And are, are you optimistic, not that this necessarily matters in Bitcoin's journey, I think, but are you optimistic that some, let's say, some political leaders or some progressive political leaders, whether it's AOC, Bernie Sanders, do you think there's going to be a light bulb moment at some point? Um, just, just for fun. Do you think th this would actually happen where they're like, oh, I'm actually connecting that my residents who are having a tough time getting bank accounts or have been you know, disproportionately affected by terrible loan practices and things like this can actually benefit from a tool that's, that's built around Bitcoin. It doesn't mean Bitcoin's going to solve all their problems, but just seeing the problems that exist, do you do you think there could be a light bulb moment anytime soon for these leaders? Because some days I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's any day now. They're going to connect the dots and see, regardless of Bitcoin, they're going to see, oh, the way we've been going, these Band-Aid solutions aren't going to work if our global financial system continues the way it is. That's kind of the light bulb thing that I'm thinking. And then through that, they might see, okay, Bitcoin offers some better checks on certain things. And you know, we could talk about the varying degrees of that. but. Where are you in terms of thinking about actual political leaders from the left uh, really beginning to understand some of these things? I, I know some of them have had the light bulb moment um, because yeah. I've talked to, to some of them who have said that they had the light bulb moment. Um, I suspect some of them have had the light bulb moment, but haven't talked about it due to the prevailing mm. political winds and their own um, situation and power and things like that. Um, I suspect that there are more people on the left in government who are aware of the role that Bitcoin can play and the things that they care about, like economic justice and racial justice and things like that, that haven't been open about it yet because of mm -hmm. the sort of prevailing political winds. Um, I also suspect that there are some people who are motivated not to have that light bulb moment, um, either because they've staked their reputation on being anti-Bitcoin um, or because 
they are being funded by people who um, Bitcoin harms, like banks, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know which camp various people fall into. There, there also might just be people that are kind of too old <laughs> to, and set in their ways to understand how a money could not be printed and distributed by a government. Um, and they mm-hmm. just might not even understand what Bitcoin is and how it's different. I suspect that's true on both sides of the aisle because uh, mm-hmm. like yeah. Congress is very old. So yeah, yeah. When, when it comes to someone like Elizabeth Warren, for example, I go back and forth uh, on which category I think she belongs in. Um, I have a lot of Elizabeth Warren merchandise. I voted for her in the uh, 2020 primary and I was really disappointed. And I thought at first, maybe this was just a a case of her, um, the first thing that she heard being anti-Bitcoin and then just that kind Mm -hmm. of setting the window, right? I teach critical thinking. Um, I know how these uh, anchoring and uh, initial impressions can work and how they they set the standard for the views that are even permissible to have after that. So then I thought, well, maybe, you know, as more as more Democrats and progressives are talking about Bitcoin and explaining um, what they see, what role they see Bitcoin playing and bringing about the policies that Elizabeth Warren uh, claims to support and the goals that she wants to achieve, then she'll come to understand. And, you know, I offered to do that myself. (laughs) She hasn't taken me up on the offer yet. And Mm -hmm. I'm increasingly uh, thinking that either she just can't understand it or that she's motivated not to understand it. And I'm sure there Mm -hmm. are a large number of other people on both sides of the aisle who are in that position as well. So as to the sort of prevailing winds of, of change among progressives and liberals and Democrats and people on the left uh, with respect to Bitcoin, I am optimistic that that can change. Um, I think that the work that people like Troy Cross and Marco Paez and others are doing uh, in the mining space and talking about Mm -hmm. Bitcoin as a way of combating climate change, not just not contributing to it, but actually uh, undoing and and mitigating it. Daniel Batten is another one. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's that's the main locus of debate right now between people on the left with respect to Bitcoin. And if that can be overcome, then I think the financial inclusion and justice things are very easy to sell. Yeah. So that that's why the book went from having one chapter on security through energy to two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we we yeah. think that's really important to talk about. Yeah, I agree and I think it's one of the easiest ones to taking something very tangible that's happening that's important for Bitcoin, like Bitcoin mining, explaining it to people and then Daniel especially. I mean Troy and Margo have been doing it for so long, but I think Daniel started ramping it up even more the past year in terms of just daily putting out content and articles and research that says, okay, yes, Bitcoin mining can help expand renewables, but let's focus on like methane mitigation. And here's exactly how this could work and what it would look like giving very tangible things about one thing in particular. Methane is just the, there's so many other options here, but he even put out something recently, um, it was today or yesterday, and I forget what nation in Europe was going after carbon captured technology, which again is mainly just an expense to the business or an expense to, you know, uh, you know, taxation or something like that for a state to actually pay for this and saying, okay, instead of carbon capture, you could also do 
you know, methane mitigation with Bitcoin mining and actually get better results. And it would be financially incentivized. So greed could incentivize this. And I think that for me is one of the biggest disconnects, I think, between um, the left and Bitcoin as well is just understanding that so many of the things we want, like better results for, for climate, mm -hmm. as I truly believe we do need to address climate change. Like as a progressive, that's one of the things I'm most passionate about. But I came to a realization, especially through Bitcoin, we're not going to do it through just do the right thing. I think I'm a bit more pessimistic in, in that realm. We need market incentives to actually get businesses and players to actually buy into this, to have any meaningful change. Uh, and Bitcoin mining is a way to do that. So I think explaining that to people on the left, having the patience to do that and get through some of the political rhetoric is super important. So I, I agree. Um, I, I think it's one of the most important things for the left to hear. Yeah, I think it's really complicated. There are lots of moving mm -hmm. parts uh, with respect to energy grids and sources of energy and intermittencies of renewable energy and Bitcoin mining hardware and all these sorts of things. So there's a lot, mm -hmm. it, it's hard to get a handle on um, how all these things fit together and what the, the ultimate story is. And the, the alternative story is very easy, which is Bitcoin consumes as much electricity as, and then insert a country. Uh, mm -hmm. Or each Bitcoin transaction is equivalent to this much of a household's electricity use. And the, the sound bites are just so much better that way. And yeah, yeah. The, the people who believe that Bitcoin is actually helping with climate change and can help more have to sit down and bring in numbers and data and explain how energy grids work and explain what happens to uh, methane on oil fields and explain how energy is transported. And it's just a much longer story. You can't say it in yeah. a tweet or two tweets. Or probably even a yeah. tweet thread. So, right. uh, yeah, while I'm optimistic that the truth is on the side of um, Bitcoin, I think that getting people to see it is really difficult. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, for the what I feel, too, is folks in the community that champion Bitcoin, the one thing I think folks have started to do a better job with since I've been in the space, but doing a better job at not making it solely about Bitcoin, making it about what is Bitcoin address? Because some people are like, oh, they just love this Bitcoin thing. It's like a religion to them, right? I, I've heard that many times. I had to, you know, I, I've talked with my wife for so long about this um, in terms of like the, the benefits of it. And she's kind of over time started to understand why I get so passionate about it because she understands what I was passionate about and still am before Bitcoin and how I've connected that. So it's not like, oh, I was passionate about this. Now I'm passionate about Bitcoin. It's like, I'm passionate about that. That's why I'm passionate about Bitcoin. Like I'm, I'm passionate about finding solutions to address some practical things with greenhouse gas emissions. Well, Bitcoin can do that. Like some issues of inequality, maybe we can start to talk about how Bitcoin addresses that. And I think that's something that we can do a better job about is like, you know, the mantras of, of Bitcoin will fix everything, you know, that, that only goes so far. Like you said, it kind of on opposite end. That's good for a tweet. You know, that's mm -hmm. good for, a little thread, but for people that don't know anything about what we're talking about, as they're not going to <laughs> without exploring more, some of these practical things, those are the light bulb moments of like, oh, we need hooks to, to pull people in to understand more. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask as well before it leaves my mind is these, you know, passionate arguments, all of these 
easily digestible misinformation things. You coming from a you know philosophy teacher approaching these things, thinking about critical thinking, social media, all of these dynamics, how how can we approach people in terms of critical thinking? Because it requires critical thinking and critical thinking, even with myself, it's really easy to get impassionate and just run down something. I have to do a make a conscious effort to take a step back to address my preconceived notions and to try to think critically. It's not the first step in our brain usually. So how do you approach that with like, how do we think critically, <laughs> I guess, is, uh, is one question for, you know, for the next 12 hour conversation we do. But in terms of this specifically, um, what are, what are some things we can help address people in like thinking critically about, about issues? Cause that's something that's been very challenging. I'm not sure that we can. Um, mm. yeah. I, and that's, that's an answer. I, too. I, yeah. I think we, here's what I think. I think we can teach people to think critically. Um, but we can't as Bitcoiners teach people to, to think critically because the second that we invoke critical thinking in service of Bitcoin, people are going to be suspicious. Um, mm -hmm. and if you say, well, here, now here's, here's how we need to evaluate the evidence. They're thinking, you're just telling me that because this way of evaluating the evidence supports Bitcoin <laughs> and this other way right, doesn't. Right. And mm -hmm. so I think we need to teach people general critical thinking skills um, completely separate from Bitcoin or politics or whatever. We need to teach them how our minds work, the shortcuts that we take, the ways that we tend to go wrong when we're evaluating, collecting evidence and giving arguments and considering arguments. And then <laughs> if they're good at that, then they'll, they'll maybe recognize the specific errors that they're making when they're thinking about Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. So I talked earlier about the um, people who the first thing they hear about Bitcoin is, you know, how bad it is for the environment. Um, we know from many, many psychological studies that our brains weight or our minds weight the evidence that we get first more heavily than the evidence mm -hmm. that we get later. So, for example, you can give people a list of attributes of a person and ask what they think of the person. And the order that the attributes are listed on this piece of paper will affect how like good of a person they think it is. So if you start with the negative mm -hmm. ones and then get better and better, they rate the person as a worse person than if you start with the positive ones. Um, and go. Yeah. you can show them two videos, one of a person, you know, helping a child to learn to ride a bike and then of the other of the person like hitting someone. And if they see the bike riding first, they'll be like, oh, he... He probably hit that person because they uh, tried to harm his child or something. But if they see mm -hmm. him in the opposite mm -hmm. order, it's like, well, of course he's teaching the kid to ride the bike. You know, he doesn't want to have to be responsible for the kid. He, he's obviously a terrible person because he hit them. So we just know right. that the evidence that we get first, uh, we weight more heavily. I'm not sure that in the context of Bitcoin, we can say to people, now, I know you've probably heard a lot of bad things about Bitcoin, but just because you heard it first doesn't mean it's more likely to be right. Let me now give you some other things. Um, they're right, just right. not not going to be able to to learn like that. So I'm I'm not. I'm not very sanguine on the prospect of trying to teach these things simultaneously, but I do think more people should take critical thinking classes <laughs> um, so mm. that they can learn just how many times they're they're making these kinds of cognitive reasoning mistakes. Yeah. And at least for me personally, like 
I don't really like being told what to do, as trivial as that sounds. Um, I grew up in a, I've mentioned this a few times, and I know you've taught classes, I believe, on like philosophy of religion and things like this. I grew up in a very conservative evangelical environment. And and since then, you know, have really been turned off by evangelizing, by by things that I've seen similar, uh, similar communities. It's not just Bitcoin, but so many different that replicate from religion. And for me personally, preaching about Bitcoin and using that word specifically, I don't think is the most effective tool, right? It's kind of like presenting resources, doing people doing better about what, what you mentioned with Troy and so many others, just putting out data, putting out facts, kind of set, settling there, having it become more and more a norm to dispute things and then having people realize this or access it themselves and, and things like that, I think is way better. That's how I came to, to Bitcoin um, in general, was just kind of learning for yourself. And I think folks need to do a better job also of trusting that people can and will do that rather than saying you won't. So I'm going to, I'm going to teach you about this in this way. Like you need to listen. That's an immediate turnoff as well. And there's got to be different studies around that as well. And the effects of that, maybe mm -hmm. it works for some people, but I don't think it would be the most effective tool. And I, I think we're still doing a lot of that in terms of, of Bitcoin. Yeah. I think the other thing that we can do that helps is tell stories and tell mm. other people's stories or um, yep. elevate the voices of people who are telling their stories. Um, so people mm -hmm. in Ukraine who received aid in Bitcoin, um, people in Hong Kong who use Bitcoin to buy things to protest the, the government, um, people who live in Turkey or Argentina with really high inflation who are using Bitcoin. Um, we can, we, I can like mention them now, but that's not going to move people mm -hmm. as much as hearing, hearing them tell their story uh, of how Bitcoin yeah. is helping them. And the more of those stories you hear, the more difficult it is to have this tech bro reaction or to have this, oh yeah, yeah but cli you know, uh, climate change and Bitcoin mining uses so much electricity. Um, we know that electric some electricity use is worth it. <laughs> So the question we need to ask mm -hmm. then is, is this kind of electricity use worth it? Well, maybe it's not for the vast majority of the Bitcoin stories we hear, which is relatively wealthy um, white people in America who have it as a, a backup currency, um, a, a store mm -hmm. of value, things like that. Um, I yeah. personally don't really care about that. Um, most of those people would have been just fine without Bitcoin. They wouldn't be as wealthy, but they wouldn't be in trouble. Um, I care mm -hmm. about the people who would be in big trouble without Bitcoin, struggling to survive or maybe not survive. Um, yeah. Those are the stories that motivate me to, you know, work on Bitcoin and to try to convince people that it's a good thing. Yeah, same. And I, I go back and forth all the time. Sometimes I get so frustrated with that, that first narrative or the middle narrative you mentioned of, you know, let's say folks in the US, middle class, upper class folks. And I'm like, listen, I'm just going to stop <laughs> focusing on that or trying to convince you all or this group and just try to amplify stories and have conversations with those folks you just mentioned. Because without those stories or without those use cases, yeah, we have PayPal, we have all these other things. And again, then you understand un, you know, underlying fundamental tech and you see the potential problems with that that could happen. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. Um, in the US, but those conversations, I think, make Bitcoin worth it. Like, why was this experiment created in the first place? Why are we focusing on this? And for me, those use cases are enough to say, yeah, 
we should we should advocate for this and kind of see this out because that that is worth it enough. Um, I don't think the people that say, well, we need more use cases or it needs to accomplish these three million things. I don't think they're being genuine in that because one of those stories you mentioned, I think is enough to say, let's let's at least just like leave it alone or try to have it flourish or let's let's even support it or advocate for it. Whatever. I think you're exactly right. Um, more and more people share those stories and are moved by those stories. Um, and that, that makes a lot of sense. That's what a Bitcoin is for anyone, everyone. I, I've started to like the term Bitcoin is for anyone a little bit better recently. Um, but, uh, you know, Bitcoin is also for those people. That's what, it, that's what brought me into it is seeing it as it's for the 99%. It's for this global population where, that have been uh, decimated by their financial structures and things like that. And I think once people hear that argument, Again, just using my wife as a reference, once I told her about like Farida's story and Togo and these activists, it was like, oh, yeah, like, why aren't we doing more to support this? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I do know, but I don't know at the same time. Yeah, I mean, the, the first uh, story that I remember hearing is, was the story of Roya and starting this company mm -hmm. and hearing about people that were working for her that as soon as they get paid would have to turn over all their money to their husbands. and have they had no financial freedom or independence on their own and yeah so she started paying them bitcoin so largely because they could hide it and they wouldn't have to tell anyone mm -hmm. about it so financial privacy um, is really important for a lot of people any anyone who wants to monetarily interact in ways that their families governments um corporations whatever don't like um is at risk if you have a, a technology that's not private. And so I think because of the way, because of how Bitcoin started with uh, cypherpunk message boards and because of the number of libertarian leaning people, the stories that people tend to think about when they think about Bitcoin is like, oh yeah, that's what you use. Uh, and Silk Road, you know, that's what you use to buy drugs mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or assassins or guns. Um, and we don't like those things. So Bitcoin is bad. And it doesn't take much of a, imagination to think about other countries and rules that they have that you might think people are at least permitted to break, if not obligated to break. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not then hard to think about other states and rules that they might be currently enacting or, or have enacted in mm -hmm. the past um, about, say, reproductive health care or about yeah. marijuana and think, yeah, maybe maybe there's a reason that we had things like cash and maybe it's good for for that to exist digitally so that people can mm -hmm. get the healthcare that they need or can um, get the anxiety medication that they need. And um, yeah, so elevating more of the stories, I think, is just huge. Yeah, you know, you know, Margo and I touched on that when when her and I spoke recently, but that's a that's a grave concern for me because of the the actions like uh, let's say and i'll be specific here i'll use an example there there are many i think it can be used in totalitarian ways on on both sides but for me personally again as a progressive i'll make no ifs ands and buts about this i think let's say someone like ron DeSantis and the the policies that he's tried to enact in in florida let's say this person hypothetically became president and wanted to enact some of these things a bit more federally or other states were supportive of him as leader so Texas and Alabama and whoever else, just mentioning random states here as an example, um, wanted to say, okay, you know, Planned Parenthood cannot function in certain areas of our 
of our state or other areas, um, banks will kind of hear this and sort of, there might be some petition, but, but they can be crafty politically with ways they, they say and suggest it's not as bad as people are saying and this and that, you know, Planned Parenthood could have banking access cut off in a particular state. And those services, let's say they're interrupted even for a few months until Congress passes something, but let's say they don't. And it's just inoperable in certain states, right? Just some basic tenets. Like that is not something that's a far stretch for me as a progressive that I try to tell progressive friends about saying, if there were different, better ways to support these organizations, so they didn't have to rely on banks that have state licenses and then federal licenses, if they could raise and support Bitcoin. And if we had what I would say is more supportive legislation to where people could actually spend and and use and hold Bitcoin uh, in even more supportive ways. These are things that could happen in the US. And I think there are more deadly ramifications in other places like you're mentioning, uh, whether we're talking about like Afghanistan, whether we're talking about Togo and other places. But there's different ways where it's not too far of a stretch to think about what that can mean in, in the US. You know, if something is used against your enemy, it can be used against you. And Ian Gaines and I, by the time our conversation comes out, his will be out, talked a lot about this in terms of technology and, and freedom tech. It's top of mind for me as a progressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you imagine someone who lives in Austin and gets pregnant, is really looking forward to having a baby at 26 weeks, finds out that the baby's organs are growing outside of its body and it's probably going to die in the womb and definitely not going to survive outside of the womb for longer than a few hours. But uh, Texas and Louisiana and Arkansas and Oklahoma have all outlawed abortion. And so it's, you know, a 14 hour drive to Albuquerque. Um, And when you Mm -hmm. get back, Texas also has uh, laws that um, incentivize people to report you if they think that you've had an abortion. Mm -hmm. And they'll get some sort of financial reward for it. So you can imagine someone in that position thinking, um, I'm in trouble. <laughs> what am I, what am I yeah. going to do? Um, how do I pay for this? Uh, how do I arrange this kind of thing? So having some sort of uh, messaging system that doesn't store records um, and then having some sort of payment technology that is private and, and censorship resistant seems really important. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So I, yeah. and this is, this is a case where even with Bitcoin, there could still be very challenges. To this, the government can still use, you know, metaphorically this physical force, right. In terms of whether it's taxation, in terms of whether it's prison time, like, like, but there's, there are many tools within Bitcoin that utilize Bitcoin and utilize other privacy tech that can make it more private. Like Bitcoin on the surface doesn't necessarily do that. That's why it's kind of like a, okay, Bitcoin is the start of other conversations about other types of freedom tech that use Bitcoin. Um, that's a that's a perfect example right there. Yeah. And what's so frustrating is folks on the left, I think, care a lot about that, but I haven't seen that that connection yet. Um, and I'm really hoping that that connection will be made as well. Like so many different activist groups. Um, I had I had been trying to do research the past year or so just on seeing if there were any LGBTQ trans communities that were thinking through some of these problems in terms of, you know, protesting, raising support, things like this. Um, and I actually saw, I think I mentioned this in one other conversation. It might've been with Margot. Um, 
about some cryptocurrency that was targeted at like, okay, this is the crypto uh, currency for the gay community, right? But it was a it was a crypto that can be rugged. It was a private company. It was all of these things, and it's like, no, you're missing the point. Like, use Bitcoin. Like, you use Bitcoin in these instances to to crowdfund to source. Um, but they were creating other crypto projects, um, trying to get at what we're articulating, because Bitcoin for them has been labeled as it's the right wing currency. Um, and mainstream media has really supported that, um, a little bit less and less, but really ramped it up, um, during COVID time. And I think there were some famous players in the space that really talked about how they held and used Bitcoin. So mainstream media ran with that as well, which is, um, unfortunate. And I think we're still trying to get over that a little bit. I know bit. that Nick Dobrow at one point was talking to women shelters about sending women out with mm. Bitcoin so that they could more easily transact in ways that their people who've been victims of uh, domestic violence or something wouldn't expose their credit cards if if that might be something that their uh, former partner had access to or things like that. It would be, uh, you'd just be more yeah. confident that when they were buying things, um, it wasn't being tracked. They weren't being spied on. Um, the, the person wasn't going to end up showing up having found out where they live or something. So, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's I mean, these it, cases all over the place <laughs> for the kinds of yeah, things that we, progressives claim to care about. And so either they don't know about them and we need to do a better job of um, not just talking about uh, Bitcoin as a store of value and digital gold and all this stuff, but um, Bitcoin as a, a way of uh, enacting these kinds of things. Or they know about it and they don't think the trade-off is worth it. And so we can, mm -hmm. we can I think, talk about this on two fronts. One is um, why... Why isn't it worth it? What are the trade-offs that you think are, are bad? It's probably the energy stuff. Uh, and then we can mm -hmm. say, um, look at how many people could potentially use this. And the more people that are using it, the more private it becomes, the, the more mm -hmm. you're part of a vast network of people. So you can try to hide in a crowd of 20, much easier to hide in a crowd of 100,000. So the more people that have Bitcoin and are transacting with it, uh, are using Lightning, are on the blockchain, um, the harder it is for, say, authoritarian governments to pick out one particular person's transactions. And mm. so the more, the more privacy everyone's. We call this privacy by obscurity in the book. Yeah, yeah. And, and the more, you know, the more people get into it as well, the, again, going back to that Trojan horse analogy, the financial incentive for companies to create products, whether it's apps, whether it's lightning and other other uh, apps for actually using Bitcoin that increase privacy layers like there's then a market demand like people will be more likely to create products that cater to that. Um, in addition, adding more and more security to it. So it's all of these things that that, that go through that. But how one one thing that I think progressives have been using i know it, you know it's a whole other conversation that i did don't typically get into because it's just so frivolous but greenpeace and others so now what we're seeing um you know we don't know when but obviously a lot of institutions a lot of big banks a lot of etfs and market makers and all these things are you know kind of flipping the script on bitcoin and saying okay we're we're for bitcoin they're seeing ways they can make money on it obviously as a as a product and so they're they're all in makes sense just from that practical angle I think a lot of progressives, one thing I could see uh, that the Greenpeace has already tried is that, okay, big banks and these kind of corporations are all in on Bitcoin. They're, you know, those people screw over the little guy or fight against the little guy. And obviously 
someone holding or utilizing Bitcoin does not do anything to affect um, other someone else for wanting to use Bitcoin in a different way. So how do you how do you think through that? Do you think that is just a a messaging, you know, an unfortunate messaging event? Do you think that this will actually make it harder for Bitcoin to be used in the way that it should be used because people might be more likely to just have it in the ETF or it might be difficult. Uh, it's kind of a way for the government to have better tabs on on Bitcoin and price movement and all of these things. Have you put much thought into that? Yes. Um, ultimately, I think it's probably a good thing. Uh, what I would like is for all of the people who really need Bitcoin to, to get Bitcoin and then for these ETFs to be approved and the, the price of Bitcoin goes up and all the people who really need it the most have gotten in first. Um, mm. So one of the ways that, that Greenpeace is maybe trying to taint uh, Bitcoin is this idea that because these companies are into it, it's either already bad um, and that's why they're into it, or they're going to make it bad. And mm -hmm. I don't think that either of those work. I think we can combat the first one by just telling all these stories. Uh, and then the second one, I think we can just explain how Bitcoin works and the fact that these people have no control over the Bitcoin protocol. They have no dis uh, control over the distribution of Bitcoin. They have no control unless they, you know, start doing things like mining. And um, so this is one area where I do start to get concerned is if um, if there becomes a sufficiently large mining pool that can start to do things like sensor transactions, um, block certain kinds of coins from being um, transacted, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. that that's a concern that will that has always been a concern i think it will always be a concern um mm -hmm. that bitcoin is subject to this kind of capture um so we talk about this in in chapter 11 of the book where we consider all these objections against bitcoin one of them is that at present it's not prohibitively expensive to run that kind of i, I consider it an attack on the bitcoin network mm -hmm. um but if that doesn't happen, I think that these ETFs and things like that make the price go up. Um, it is unfortunate that people who might otherwise have acquired Bitcoin uh, and custodied it themselves and things like that are going to just have ETFs instead. But for the vast majority of people who buy the ETFs, they wouldn't have bought Bitcoin at all. And so I, I don't mm -hmm. think it removes any of the privacy or censorship or inclusion uh, aspects of Bitcoin from anyone else. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, yeah, while you were talking, it also, it might have been Troy in an episode of Peter's podcast, What Bitcoin Did, um, mentioning that, and I don't know how much you think about this too, or if this ship has sailed, you know, the potential of the White House under any administration or, you know, Fed in any regard leaning on Bitcoin miners or some of these pools. Let's say the attack doesn't even happen in that vector, but then government comes in and says, we need you to start censoring XYZ transactions. Or obviously there, there's different, okay, transactions from North Korea. And for me, my argument is typically just do better police work. Like don't, don't you know, change a whole protocol or try to just censor arbitrarily, which has been our 
status quo since 2001, quite frankly, um, in our country. Like, do better police work. You can, if you're doing good police work, you can see if someone's using uh, Bitcoin for illegal and illicit, like arms smuggling, terrorism, things like that, easier than you can cash, quite frankly. You're just not doing it. You'd rather take the lazier approach, to be honest. For you, is that um, alongside that attack vector? Is that that something, you know, I know companies can say, oh, we won't do that, this and that. But, you know, at the end of the day, depending on where you're at, uh, that's why I think global mining options are really important as well. Um, what, what do you think about that in terms of any realistic option? Or do you think that ship is kind of sailing? Um, I, I get so it would take something like an, a constantly updating list of blocked addresses, maybe that that mm -hmm. uh, US based companies just couldn't allow on the blockchain. So then the idea would be, um, if you're mining in another country, and you know that the list is out there, you have access to the list, you can choose to use it or not. Um, but you know that a US based company won't build on top of blocks that you create. Um, they'll only build on top of blocks that they create, or that that don't have these addresses in them, then you start to get worried about um, whether you're going to end up mining a bunch of orphaned blocks. And that becomes prohibitively, uh, it becomes cost prohibitive to you. So yeah, I take that as a serious, <laughs> a serious concern as well. Mm. Um, what I think we would see is the majority of hash rate not be in the U.S. And these U.S. Mm -hmm. companies who are, who are trying to um, mine complying with these rules, um, their blocks would still be valid according to the rest of the world. So they could still continue to exist, continue to run profitably. Um, but I would think that anyone who had a choice about where to mine would not want to be mining in the U.S. if that's mm -hmm. what happened. Yeah, so a bit of the game theory playing yeah, out more. Yeah, I, I would, my, I think rational brain thinks thinks that because we've seen that, right? Um, it's a lot of the argument that why haven't they squashed it already <laughs> a while ago? Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see with that. But one other thing I want to make sure to to cover with you in terms of, you know, talking inside baseball on progressive politics. Um, so, you know, in Congress, there's the progressive caucus which I would say a lot of the conversation we've had in terms of different value sets and things like this, um, I would say we probably agree with and align with in terms of this value, value set. But the one thing I would veer from with the Progressive Caucus are a lot of progressives who are fighting for legislation in the United States, um, almost across the board. Once I got into Bitcoin, I started to learn more and more about the history of money, um, budget deficits, uh, US budget deficits, things that Republicans kind of talk a lot about, but they only talk about it when their candidate isn't in office. You know, it's this, it's a political game. It's not actually on a, uh, you know, this is the theory I believe in. Um, and this is it, it, not even in regard to like Keynesian or Austrian economics. It's more like our, our nation is massively in debt. Um, we're constantly facing crises and banking crises that happened even earlier this year and of last year that can be more quickly covered up, uh, at alarming rates compared to 2008. Um, those things I, I think will just continue to happen and are being far too normalized that affect everyday people and will continue affecting everyday people. I would, I would say what concerns me is the progressive caucus or progressive politicians would say, okay, the budget deficit, like 
people that argue against that or say we couldn't, shouldn't keep spending, or that's kind of a monetary theory. You know, I've heard some people say that argument is, oh, it's actually racist. It actually affects other folks if we say, okay, we can't keep racking up budget deficit. And I think there's a lot of people that truly believe that and have the best of intentions about wanting to pass really uh, progressive policies and, and get money down to the people who need it most and healthcare and all of these other things, but don't understand that this budget deficit, these Fed policies, this history of money, all of these things really, really matter. And we're probably not going to be able to address some of these thing, things in that same way without looking at that first. Like uh, progressives don't seem to, to understand that, at least progressive politicians that are trying to make some of these decisions. And I'm not sure if it's an education gap. I'm not sure if it's just, well, these are the cards we're dealt. We have to do the best with what we can. Um, and I'm not advocating for, okay, let's switch to hard money tomorrow and just let it crash. And then we'll rebuild, right? That would be awful. Um, a lot of death, a lot of destruction, quite, quite literally. So it's not even that. Um, how, how do you think through that as well? Because I think the left and money, it's just a complicated, messy thing that I would like for folks to start seeing in a, in a different way, I think. The first thing... There's yeah. a lot in there. It should, that's, that's something I think about a lot. I'm like, I don't know how to, how to address this. And, and sorry, I'll add one more thing. You know, even for me personally, I am, um, in terms of, you know, big government budgets, this and that, like, listen, my thought is like, I, I agree with you. I think healthcare should be a right. I think there are a lot of things we should be spending a lot of money on in this nation as a country that accepts taxes, that is in the year 2023 with a population of 350 million, um, that is not returning to a feudal era. So there are some things that I believe in taxation for and believe that we should be spending money on as a progressive that advocates for certain policies from legislation with taxpayer dollars. So I'm not saying we should get rid of government funding for a lot of things. I think we should increase it for some things. Um, but it's very complicated with, with money and we can't just do that without looking at other areas, mm -hmm. in my opinion. The first thing, so I think there's two separate things here. One is how does all that stuff that you just said relate to Bitcoin? And then the second is, um, what do I think of all that stuff? So I'll do the Bitcoin one first because I think it's easier. Um, mm. I, don't, I don't ever see, I, maybe not ever, I would be shocked in my lifetime if the US dollar were to fail. Um, I think the US will continue to use the US dollar and it's very unlikely that we'll adopt Bitcoin. I do think yep, it's really, that, yeah. really important that Bitcoin exist alongside the US dollar. One, as a competitive check against the policies and institutions that deal with the US dollar. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, and already in the privacy um, domain, we see US talking about a central bank digital currency. Um, the fact that Bitcoin exists as a digital currency with certain kinds of privacy guarantees makes it more likely that the eventual US CBDC will come with some sort of privacy guarantees because there's an alternative people can go to. And I think that's the same mm -hmm. thing for Bitcoin's monetary policy. The fact that Bitcoin exists and has a set in stone monetary policy serves as a competitive check against uh, US monetary policy. There is, there is somewhere else that people can go. They can exchange their dollars for Bitcoin relatively easily if they get too mm -hmm. concerned about the U.S.'s monetary policy. Um, yeah, or at least from corporate interests, right? Like if they say, I don't want to support 
JP Morgan Chase and have my money sitting there and losing value in a savings account. I'll I'll save some of that in Bitcoin, right? So at least start with the the corporate, you know, from from a progressive mindset. That's that's an easy argument there too. Yeah, that too for sure. Um, so then, what do I think of ways that progressives have advocated for, um, especially social policies that cost a lot of money? Um, I I think that one problem has been that they've proposed a tax increase and they've proposed spending that tax money on things like healthcare and they're not getting the tax increase <laughs> that they want. And so mm-hmm. when they succeed yeah. in the spending part, but they don't succeed in the, in the paying for it part, then we end up printing more money. I'm not sure that they acknowledge the potential problems with excess money printing. Um, you, you might have thought that we would have learned a lesson from inflation in the last couple of years as a result of, it seems, to pretty much everyone, excess money printing. Um, they hmm. may have learned that lesson. It, so, I'm not sure. Well, I'll, I'll pause there because at least in, in speeches made, this has been a, a, a point from most in the West that are left-leaning leaderships, whether it's Canada in in much of Europe compared to like the U.S. context and what we think of, you know, at least moderate left, that kind of thing. In the U.S., a lot of it has not been said, oh, it's because we're printing money. Like they're not outright saying that. And again, inflation is a whole nother very complicated case. There's people that argue that is one of the sole reasons. There's many people that argue that's one of five reasons. There's varying degrees of what you can make reasonable arguments about how much that contributes. But the fact is, is that it is making somewhat of an effect. I think that's undisputable, as you mentioned. But a lot of folks are are mentioning um, other things. I think corporate greed is bad. I don't think corporate greed is good. But I don't think that is one of the leading causes of inflation over a couple of year period. You you have months here and there. But so there are folks that are just not saying that at all. And many of my friends and many people on the left don't know that at all. Like money printing as a concept would not even understand where to begin interesting yeah so maybe maybe it's my own particular bubbles of um progressives that i talk to that are that pretty directly connect the stimulus checks with inflation but also think yeah maybe i need maybe i need smarter (laughs) friends too they they also think as as i do like the stimulus checks were a good thing and this this pandemic might have been a complete disaster on some sort of hard money standard i i agree with that as a progressive bitcoiner and again, we can say we as a society agree to pay for things like that and maybe don't agree to pay for other things or corporate bailouts or all of these other um, nonsense things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I think when it comes to the things that the uh, pro- progressive caucus want to use money to pay for, uh, I agree <laughs> by and large, um, things like healthcare, um, and they want to pay for it by, you know, not spending so much money in the defense budget and by taxing billionaires mm-hmm. at a much greater rate. And I agree with those two things too. Yeah. I, I agree with that too. The one thing I have not seen come to fruition, as you mentioned, is at the end of the day, because they go through this committee and that committee and that committee, and then by the end, those tax increases didn't happen. And then they try to package it onto some emergency measure. And that's where the conspiracy theories come into play. And again, it's tougher and tougher for me to argue it, for me to say, Hey, Democrats, or hey, whatever, wake up. Look how people are connecting the dots and making, I think, 
kind of wild conspiracy claims about, oh, they're only going to sneak this in. They're going to create emergencies in the future to fund these things. It's like, give me a reason to prove them wrong, because that seems to be the only time that you all are actually trying to pass legislation um, to bring about these initiatives or whatever. And they, quite frankly, are not uh, interested at all in talking about the deficit um, because it is a very abstract thing for people, but it's been affecting us year after year after year after year for a long time, you know, since the, since the nineties or whenever it's really been ramping up, um, um, since then. So yeah, I agree with you. And I think these conversations are a bit too nuanced as well. Um, or it's nuanced that we should be having more in Bitcoin is like, there are many progressive Bitcoiners that would say, yes, we do want to spend money and taxation, um, on certain things. But I'm also saying from the left, you cannot completely disregard money printing and the effect that it has on poor people in the country through inflation and ramping up inequality. That's 100% true. Um, in terms of, of progressives, for folks listening, I know a few, but you mentioned some. Um, I, I believe you were one of the speakers at the, um, the Bitcoin Policy Institute um, event in D.C. That Remind me when that event was. Was that this summer? Mar- time March or April? The place. <laughs> <laughs> it was, okay, it was before yeah. that. Yep, yep. Um, and I know I, I heard from many folks how great of an event that was. And I think a lot of those videos are up as well for folks to, to find um, through Bitcoin Policy Institute's YouTube and, and Twitter, things like that. Some of the progressives that you would say are kind of open to these conversations that we're talking about. I think there are a lot that are open to crypto, blockchain, things like that, and including Bitcoin. Um, you know, do you have any folks that you would, you would uh, recommend or kind of in general, what have com- some of those conversations been like for you um, interfacing with some of these folks, interfacing with other folks that are doing work in DC? Um, what are some of the, the things you're hearing from progressives that are open to, to Bitcoin? Uh, that the human rights angle is everything. <laughs> Um, mm. that if, if there's any, if there's to be any hope of onboarding more or, or bringing on board, onboarding sounds way too much like a, a platform or something, bringing on board yeah, yeah. to, uh, being pro Bitcoin, uh, more democratic representatives, the, the human rights story has to be front and center. Um, so people like mm. Alex Gladstein at human rights foundation and mm. Roya and uh, i'm blanking on who else charlene i think was in that panel um mm. and so yeah i think she was i remember seeing it yeah video. so yep. both and uh i think ian talked about it uh mm-hmm. nationally so the so the the international and the national story um both need to be told how bitcoin is empowering um historically marginalized groups of people in the u.s and how bitcoin is helping um people in in other countries to mm. get the the things that they need or deserve um that's pretty much the the only hope that that we have um for progressives and i mean thankfully there's a lot of a lot of these stories and it's it's not hard to tell you just have to get them to listen and the way to get them yeah. to listen is to have more people typically younger um who would call them up and say you know i disagree with your Bitcoin position. Um, have you heard about this story? And, you know, just like they all have voicemails or they all have people like tell, tell some stories, <laughs> call up your representatives yeah. or call up the, the people in Congress that you like and that you agree with 
and tell them, you know, I agree with you about almost everything, but I'm really disappointed that you haven't said anything about Bitcoin, or I'm really disappointed that you've mm -hmm. signed up on this uh, anti-crypto thing, um, and, and explain why. Um, there, yeah. There's reasons for optimism, I think, among especially the, the non-big name people. So a, a lot of the big names yeah. have their reputations now staked on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. um, but the people who don't have that, they all, a lot of them, you know, represent a younger constituency. Democrats, by and large, are younger than uh, mm -hmm. Republicans. Democratic voters are younger than Republican voters, and they have more uh, Bitcoin <laughs> than the older people. Yeah. So, you know, if you have Bitcoin and you care about Bitcoin and you want um, pro-Bitcoin attitudes to be represented in Congress, then you have to somehow make that note. Yeah, I, I think that's a great, like, more ending ending <laughs> message here. Um, one other thing I would wanted to, to mention and, and ask, because there's so many things that I think Bitcoin can start to address and, and fix, but some things that not. Are there, you know, when you're thinking about kind of, we talked a lot about Congress and Senate, are there certain um, tenets or values that, that you hold when thinking about leadership in Congress? Like a lot of people... Um, Ro Khan actually put out a good list recently that I was like, I agree with, um, in terms of very practical solutions of term limits. Cause you talk about, I think one of the issues with Democrats in Congress, is you mentioned all these younger voters and there's a lot of younger leaders or younger people that are being elected into the house and other areas that I think they'd be at least be open to it. They're not going to be just staunchly against it for whatever arbitrary reason, because their opponent likes it or something like that. Um, but are there certain, uh, beliefs that you hold in terms of power and leadership uh in congress in government that if we if we voted on um would actually be beneficial things like term limits things about like money and finance things like that or there's certain things that that you see as really um positive that could be implemented to, to rein in some of the the power and checks that bitcoin just can't do right we could say okay you know we have the most pro bitcoin but we still have these leaders that are in there for 70 years and are not there and are still <laughs> in office um certain things that you kind of hold to yeah be curious um during the campaign donald trump pledged to end the revolving door of people who worked in the white house or in congress and then worked in lobbying positions or and for companies that were asking for money for the federal government contractors and things like that. And if I recall correctly, he did absolutely nothing about that. But I think that's a, a huge one is ending, um, mm -hmm. making some sort of limit on how long after you work for the White House, you can work for, you know, make some list of lobbying organizations and um, companies and vice versa. You can't go straight from ExxonMobil to uh, the White House or to Congress or something like that. Yeah. Um, and limits on congressional trading, I think, are a really big one. A lot of people in Congress profit off the insider knowledge that they have about uh, what's happening mm -hmm. in the country. And so I think something like a ban on trading individual stocks is completely reasonable. Yep. Um, some sort of campaign finance reform, um, these mm -hmm. 501c4s that can operate without basically disclosing anything at all um i i think that so much money is spent on elections that could be spent on something else so i'd almost favor some sort of public uh funding of campaigns and and capping how much can be spent 
Um, and yeah, I think th- those would go a long way towards solving yeah, we the start of, there. <laughs> uh, problems that we yeah. see financially uh, with members of Congress yeah. and having sort of the, the wrong incentives to be in Congress. Yeah. And, uh, and the reason I ask that, too, is because a lot of Bitcoiners can know and get really passionate about Bitcoin. But I also think as Bitcoiners, one of the, the reasons that exists, the things we're passionate about is also a, a check on power and giving more power to local communities and people and need it. So I think it's important for Bitcoiners to educate themselves a little bit about what are some other things outside of Bitcoin that might go a long way that I think those things you mentioned are great. And we've actually seen bipartisan agreement on some of those. I think like AOC and Matt Gates have talked about stock trading. Like those things are not necessarily, I think they are progressive in a lot of ways, but they're just, it makes sense for like what government should and should not be doing. So I think there could be more Bitcoiners on the flip side, you know, non-Bitcoiners getting into Bitcoin, but Bitcoiners understanding, okay, this would go a long way alongside something like Bitcoin to put a check on power. Some of these basic things that, you know, some Bitcoiners get, some Bitcoiners might not listen to this episode because they're turned off by politics and that's, hey, totally understand. Uh, but I would encourage some folks, if you care about these these things, these values we're talking about in Bitcoin, it's also good to look into politics and see these practical checks on power that I think will go a long way. So I'm I'm actually optimistic that some of those things will happen. Um, hoping in the next year or two, yeah. we'll, we'll see. I'm optimistic <laughs> we'll see. too, but <laughs> it's been talked about for a long time. But there's yeah, also yeah. this this interesting question. I wonder where you, where you come down on this because I've I've seen a lot of Twitter discourse around this this idea of like a one issue. Bitcoin voter. And mm-hmm. I think <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> well, I just, I mean, uh, no, not to cut you off. So, that good. so I started anyway. off hating it more than I currently hate it. Um, so I started off thinking, no, there are so many things that are way more important than someone's stance on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like their stance on uh, healthcare and their stance on public education and all these kinds of things. And then the more, the more that I thought about it, the more that I think, well, you know, the story that I just told about about someone who's living in Texas and is going to die without an abortion and they can't get the abortion in Texas. Um, I think Bitcoin helps solve that problem. So then I started to think, I wonder how much of the things that I think are more important than Bitcoin um, are actually somehow related to Bitcoin, such mm. that if the person, the, the, the problems wouldn't arise as much if there was more Bitcoin adoption. So I still don't like it. And I still yeah. think it's impractical. And I still, if, if I disagreed with someone's position on healthcare, but I agreed with their position on Bitcoin, I, I don't think I would vote for them. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I wonder how a lot of people don't have to navigate this tension because they yeah. already agree with all of the aspects of the politicians that they, they want to vote for. And Bitcoin's just sure. one of them. Um, but when there's this conflict, how you know we we you have a podcast about bitcoin you don't have a podcast about all these other things clearly you think bitcoin is really important in solving mm-hmm. some of these problems so how do you navigate the internal tension between um say one candidate that's you agree with about bitcoin but not much else and then another candidate that is perhaps vociferously anti bitcoin um but you agree with about some other things yeah, it it's hard. It 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 is hard and I so I I mean I answered very abruptly saying no and I think my main reason uh because I think a lot of people that tout Bitcoin 
I don't think it'll actually get implemented the way they're saying, right? Some of these pods. So it's more of a campaign promise. Yeah, it's not going to happen. If I knew the future and knew that person was going to enact all of these different things that it will allow some people to be protected financially and also not just support Bitcoin, but support like, you know, fully encrypted technology, like private channels, other freedom tech and not hinder these things that protect people. I'd be less concerned about what they're saying on Twitter, some of their personal politics. If I know people are protected regardless of what their views are or their politics are, that would be that would be great. And I think that's more at a congressional legislation level, so many other things. So if I knew that, I think I'd be uh, along with what you're saying. But yeah, I, I would probably agree that I, I was 100% turned off by, but the more time goes on, the less I see things changing with people that I like historically. Um, the more frustrated and concerned I get that I'm like, they are just missing the boat and we need to drastically change things. You know, would I then, am I going to vote for someone like who, like Ted Cruz right off the bat? Like, absolutely not. I don't see myself doing that because I think it's been a political tool. I don't know how much could actually be practically put in. You know, some people have asked, uh, have asked me, oh, Trey, you're telling me you're not going to vote for a person that is 100% pro Bitcoin and you're going to vote for your typical candidate? Yeah, right. Like you're going to vote for the Bitcoin person. I'm like, no, I have values that supersede, um, people can read into this as they want, but supersede Bitcoin, you know, values with me that stand regardless of Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is an effective tool, um, but it is, it, it is harder and harder for me to say an outright no, absolutely not. Or, or yes, absolutely. If someone's touting it, but I, but I think in general, it's, it's an interesting marketing tactic. I know Dennis Porter used to use it. I'm not sure if he uses it much anymore. There's, there's many Bitcoiners and I think Dennis is doing incredible work. Um, but I typically shy away from that and encourage people. It sounds a bit like a religious mantra. I think we need to realize there's a lot of very important things in life and Bitcoin can be a, a tool for, but I mean, even you just asking the question is good for people to yeah. think about. <laughs> I think it's, in, in, I think it's that. very unlikely that someone would have Bitcoin as their highest value because presumably the reason they yeah. were drawn to Bitcoin was because they had other values and they saw how Bitcoin brought sure. those yep. values. And so, yeah, maybe yep. you just put, put Bitcoin along with all the rest of the ways to bring about those values and then see, um, are, are these candidates going to, on the whole, support more of my values than the other candidate. And Bitcoin will be one of those things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a good thing for people to people to think about. Um, Bradley, thank you so much for for coming on for doing this conversation. I'm sure we'll do more of these conversations. Um, but just in general, do you? Is there a current timeline on the book? I know you guys are working on it, wrapping up things really excited to to have people be able to get a copy of the book and um, advertise that for you all, of course, through through our podcast and others. Really excited for the book to come out. But if you want to, you know, where people can get updates on the book and progress and then where people can follow along you as well. The first draft of the book was sent in. We got back comments from the editor. We responded to those comments. And I, I've done my part. So we're just waiting on Andrew and Craig to uh yeah let's throw them <laughs> under the bus come on andrew and to craig write those parts but uh craig is optimistic about being done by uh, about a week from today and andrew hopefully around there as well so the goal is to have the the book submitted back to the publisher by like mid-october and then 
awesome. that it would be in printed form available to uh, purchase by mid to mid January to mid February. I'm not sure. So we're, we're looking into awesome. a bunch of different ways of uh, trying to get this book widely known. I mean, the, the goal is, so the book, the first mm. line of the book is Bitcoin is for criminals. And the yeah, goal yeah. is for I, Elizabeth yeah. Warren to hold up this book on this, on the Senate floor and say, see, Bitcoin is for criminals. Um, Cause then more people will buy it and they'll read the arguments. <laughs> can I, can I ask, did, did Andrew come up with that first line or was this a joint venture? That feels like an Andrew. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, all of you could have written that line. Yeah. So let's be fair. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I could maybe find that yeah. out. That'd be interesting. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as soon as as soon as it was down there, um, we knew we wanted to start with meeting the reader where they're at. And this is not a book mm. for Bitcoiners. Um, Bitcoiners will will learn a lot from it, I hope. Um, but it's the, the target audience is helping people to understand um, Bitcoin. It, it, the subtitle is a philosophical case for Bitcoin. You don't need to give a philosophical case mm. for Bitcoin to people who already accept Bitcoin. Um, so yeah. we're trying to meet people where they're at. And, um, so the goal is to try to get it in, into as many hands as possible who just don't understand Bitcoin or don't understand why people care about it and to give mm -hmm. some arguments that Bitcoin is good for the world. And indeed that given your values, whoever you are, um, you should prefer a world with Bitcoin in it to a world without Bitcoin. Yeah. That's great. And there's so many more new resources and books coming out that that make Bitcoin even more inclusive in just in terms of people accessing um, educational information that they can resonate with. So I'm really, really excited about that. Um, that's incredible. Really looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. Um, oh, be sure to tell people where they can where they can find you follow along if you're, you know, posting articles, you know, tweets, whatever. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Rettler B. And you can see all of the things that I've written and that Andrew and Craig have written on Bitcoin um, or any uh, subgroup thereof. Sometimes I write with Andrew, sometimes Andrew writes with Craig. Um, that's all yeah. on re resistance. How does that make you feel when Andrew writes with Craig and just... Well, sometimes it feels great because <laughs> they know a lot more about certain things than I do. And I'm glad that I don't right. have to be involved <laughs> with the more technical <laughs> aspects of things. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, all the stuff that we've written is on resistance.money. Awesome. Cool. So, people check that out. We'll, we'll throw it in the show notes as well. Bradley, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it, was a, it was a pleasure thank talking you. with you today. Thank you.